Well, the purpose of a building is, is often revealed in its design. For example, if you go into any sports stadium, whether for football or rugby or cricket, the stadium is designed with the field at its very center. All the seats in the stadium, they face the field. It's clear where your attention should be. The same thing is true in a theater or in a concert hall or in a cinema. The stage or the screen is raised up at the front of a large auditorium. All the seats face the stage or the screen. Again, you know where your attention is to be directed. So walk into any sports stadium or any theater or any cinema and you immediately understand something of its purpose. Well, friends, the same thing was true of the tabernacle that God commanded the Israelites to build. This building or, or tent had a focal point, a purpose. Its very construction and design reveal a message. And not just a message for Israel, but a message for you. Now, it's easy to get lost in all the details of the tabernacle. We're actually covering seven chapters of the book of Exodus today all the way from Exodus chapter 25 through 31, and all about the tabernacle. Let's just say there are a lot of details, far more details than I can cover in one sermon. And many of these same details are repeated again in Exodus chapter 35 through 40. So maybe if I don't mention your favorite detail today, maybe we'll mention it then. Well, all told, the book of Exodus devotes 13 chapters to the tabernacle nearly one-third of the entire book. Why so much information about the tabernacle? Because it is important. Why so many details? Because those details are important. They're communi communicating a message. There is purpose in the design. I have just two points to today's sermon to help us to wade through all these details or navigate these two details. You can find this outline in the back of your bulletin. But those two points are one, the description of the tabernacle, the description of the tabernacle, and then second, the message of the tabernacle, the message of the tabernacle. But I want to begin by just giving a brief description of the tabernacle because I hope that that will make the message of the tabernacle a bit easier to understand. And to help with that, we'll hopefully have a, a couple of pictures of the tabernacle up there on the screen behind me in a moment. And do not worry about trying to take down all the notes of all the details in this section, but just try to get a general picture. I want you to have a picture of the, the tabernacle in your head, so the message of the tabernacle will make more sense. Now, simply put, the tabernacle was a tent that served as God's earthly dwelling place or sanctuary within Israel. It was the place of worship for the people of Israel. It was designed so that Israel could pack it up and take it with them as they traveled, so God's presence would be continually with them. It's one of the reasons that all the pieces of the furniture in the tabernacle were designed with these rings on them so that they could be carried by poles as the people traveled from place to place. Now, the, the tabernacle complex can be divided into to two big sections. The first is the courtyard of the tabernacle, which is the enclosure in which the tent itself sat. And then you also have the, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting itself. Now, the courtyard was large, roughly 150 feet by 75 feet. 
And this outer courtyard, well, this is as far as an ordinary Israelite could come. It was only the priest who had been consecrated to the Lord that could actually enter into the tent itself. Now, the walls of the courtyard were made of curtains that were suspended between wooden pillars that were spaced out every so far. These wooden pillars were covered in bronze. There was only one entrance to the courtyard. It faced east and was covered by a large screen or curtain. Now, the first thing an Israelite would encounter as they came into the courtyard was the altar of burnt offering, also known as the brazen altar or the bronze altar. This is where sin offerings were made, and God commanded a fire to be kept continually burning on it for this purpose. As one commentator put it, the brazen altar, ever ablaze and covered in blood, always stood open to accept the guilt of any Hebrew person who wished to come near to God. There the guilty sinner would offer another life, an innocent one, in his stead. The brazen altar was the first thing one encountered upon entering the courtyard. The picture is clear. We cannot approach the holy presence of the Lord unless we first come to the place of sacrifice, where atonement is made for our sin. Now, the second piece of furniture stood between the bronze altar and the tent. It was the bronze basin, which is where the priests were to wash their hands before coming to the altar to make sacrifices, or before going into the tent. They were to wash their hands and their feet. It was a reminder that only those who were clean or purified could approach the presence of the Lord. Uh, Israel, like us, they were an unclean people. And the Lord was teaching that they needed to be cleansed in order to approach God's holy presence. It's like we need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, the tent itself, that's the courtyard, well, the tent itself consisted of wooden pillars that were covered with gold. The walls, again, were made of curtains that were hung between these wooden pillars. Again, the entrance to the tent faced east, and it was covered with a large screen or a large curtain. The inside of the tent was divided in two between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. There was a, a curtain or a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. This is the veil that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Not exactly this veil, but the one that would later exist in the temple to separate the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. So the tearing of the veil signaled that all who placed their faith in Jesus could draw near to God through his blood. Now, there were three pieces of furniture in the holy place. All were either made with pure gold or wood that was covered in a, in a coating of pure gold. So there was the table that held the twelve loaves of the bread of presence that were to be set before the Lord at all times as a reminder that it was the Lord who continually meets the needs of his people. There was also the lampstand that was to stay lit continually to provide light for the tabernacle and signaling God's constant care and watchfulness over his people. He is the one that gives them light. There was the altar of incense that was to burn continually to provide a pleasing aroma before the Lord, representing continual intercession or mediation 
before the Lord. And then behind the veil was the most holy place. This was the most sacred part of the tabernacle because this was the place of God's presence. Only the high priest, only the high priest was permitted to enter the most holy place. And it was in the most holy place, behind the veil, that the Ark of the Covenant was placed. The Ark was a wooden box covered in gold, and its lid was made entirely of gold. This lid was called the mercy seat, and on it were were carved or fashioned two cherubim or, or angelic beings made entirely of gold. And it was here, on the mercy seat, between the cherubim, that God would descend and meet with his people in a cloud. So look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. I will meet with you there, above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. So I described to you the ark last. But if you look at this section of the tabernacle, if you look at Exodus, you'll see Exodus 25, the first thing that God gives instructions about, it is the Ark of the Covenant. That is because it was the Ark that was the central focus of the tabernacle. The tabernacle existed to house the Ark, to hold the Ark, or the presence of the Lord, and to protect the Ark, and to shield the Ark from the people. Because it is above the mercy seat that God's glory would dwell. Again, if we know the purpose of a sports stadium or a theater based on the design of the building, well, so it was with the tabernacle. Everything centered around the most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant where God would meet with his people. This was the central feature of the tabernacle. So that was a quick and brief description of the tabernacle. I provided that because I do hope it makes the message of the tabernacle more clear. That's where we're going to spend the remainder of the sermon, that second point of the sermon, the message of the tabernacle. So if you tuned out all the details, time to come back to the sermon. Now, in the United States, we, we sometimes name buildings after people who have done something great. That may be true in your own countries as well. So Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, we have the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, to remember three of our greatest presidents. If a building or monument is named after you, good chance you've done something worthy of great respect or or honor. Brothers and sisters, the tabernacle was clearly associated with the name of the Lord. After it was constructed, it would sit at the center of the Israelite camp. And it was by far the largest and most ornate of the tents in the camp. Its very existence, its very location communicated that the Lord was worthy of worship. And that worship of the Lord was to be central to Israel's life. In fact, this this long section on the tabernacle, Exodus 25 through 31, it closes with the command for the nation of Israel to honor the Sabbath. Worship was to be central to Israel's life. 
Brothers and sisters, that is no less true of Christians today. Worship is to be central to our lives. And not just personal worship, but corporate worship. As we gather together, the church is to be a central feature of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is that the the tabernacle also revealed something about God himself. The tabernacle also revealed something about God himself. It communicates a message. The tabernacle revealed God's heart, God's rule, and God's holiness. These are going to be three sub-points to this section. We have it on the outline in the back of your bulletin, but the tabernacle revealed God's heart, God's rule, and God's holiness. We're going to look at those one at a time. So first, the, the tabernacle revealed God's heart. So look with me at Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Have that in your bulletin as well. Exodus 25, 8. And God, in those verses, told Moses the purpose for the tabernacle. They are to make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. The Lord repeated this purpose statement in Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 through 46. Exodus 29, 45 through 46. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, so that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Simply put, the tabernacle was to provide a dwelling place for God with his people so they might know him, and so that his people might enjoy the blessing of his presence with them. Now you might wonder, why a tent? The Lord is glorious. We don't often associate the tent with uh, all that much glory. But I love how one commentator put it. The Israelites were living in tents at the time. And for the Lord to command the pitching of his tent, therefore, symbolized his coming alongside his identification with them and with their circumstances. It was the Lord's intent to settle among his people. Of course, the people were going to be traveling, so this tent could be packed up and taken with the people. Well, church, the very existence of the tabernacle revealed something of God's heart. It is, an ev- it is evidence of an amazing truth. And that truth is that God desires to dwell with his people. God desires to dwell with his people. He wants to be with us. And we see in the tabernacle that God's salvation, his rescue, his redemption, it is not an end in and of itself. God saves a people for relationship with him. He saves a people so that they might know him and rejoice in him. So they might experience his love. He saved Israel. And Christian, he has saved you so that you might enjoy the blessing of relationship with him. God desires to be with you. He desires to to share his love with you. This is an amazing thing. The, The tabernacle was a step towards recovering something wonderful that had been lost. That is the presence of the Lord. It was the presence of the Lord that mankind lost when sin entered the world. Just think back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were sent away from the Garden of Eden, the place 
of the Lord's presence. They were sent away to the east of the garden, and then God put a cherubim with a sword to guard the entrance back to the garden so that they could not return. You may have picked up on this in the description of the tabernacle, but all the entrances to the tabernacle, to the courtyard, and the tent, and the most holy place, well, they faced east, the same direction that Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. Why is that? It's to symbolize that the people were coming back from their banishment into the presence of the Lord. Now, the curtain to the most holy place was embroidered with a, a cherubim guarding access to the presence of God. Just like the cherubim was stationed by God with a flaming sword to guard the entrance back into the Garden of Eden, the place of the Lord's presence. Now, the tabernacle is a sign that God was restoring what was lost. And in doing so, he was revealing his heart of love for his people. He was bringing them back to him. The church over and over again, the Bible makes it clear that God's people are those who above all else desire to be with God. God's people desire to, to know him intimately. God's people are those who delight in the Lord. I mean, just listen to these well-known words from Psalm chapter 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Verse 10. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. Well, friends, if you are a Christian... Those verses should stir your hearts and lead you to cry out hallelujah and amen. That is because it is God himself who is the truest and highest delight of his people. God's people are those who desire to be in his presence, to, to know him intimately, to fellowship with him. Friends, if that's not true of you, it could be a sign that you do not know the Lord. But it's certainly a sign that your priorities and your desires are out of balance. Friends, you've been created for fellowship with God. You have been created for fellowship with God. And it is in relationship with Him that you can try to find your, your highest delight, your ultimate satisfaction, fulfill your, your true purpose. Friends, these things are not found on or in the things of this earth, but only in God. That's why the, the writers of the New Testament tell us to set our mind on things that are above. Those things that are pure and beautiful. As God's people, we're to set our eyes most of all on Him. As this was an ornate tent, the beauty of the tabernacle was spectacular. But it pales in comparison the beauty of God. For as spectacular as this tent was, it shielded the true beauty and glory of the Lord from the people, which is far more beautiful. Brothers and sisters, in Christ you get to gaze on the beauty and the glory of the Lord. Set your mind on those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the tabernacle revealed God's heart for his people. Because it was a step towards recovering something that was lost. 
God's presence. But it was only a step towards that end. As we will see later on in the sermon, a good deal of separation remained in the tabernacle. And that's because sin remained. Well, the tabernacle, therefore, ultimately pointed forward to something greater that was to come. It was a shadow pointing forward to a greater reality, a greater experience of God's presence. Brothers and sisters, the tabernacle points us forward to Jesus. Now, this is clear from the very beginning of John's gospel. When he writes in in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, friends, a more literal translation of the Greek in that verse is not just that the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelled among us, but that Jesus tabernacled among us, or that he pitched his tent among us. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the tabernacle symbolized. He came in in flesh and blood to live among us, as one of us, to speak with us, to minister to us. He came to, to dwell in a much more personal way than God did, even in this spectacular tabernacle. Christian, Jesus' coming was an act of love for you. Therefore, later on, Jesus would say that his body was the true temple. Remember, the temple later replaced the tabernacle. Jesus said that his body was the true temple of God because the fullness of God's glory dwelled bodily in him. Friends, we have no sacred spaces in Christianity. We have a sacred person. It is in and through Jesus that we can truly see God's glory. The glory veiled in the tabernacle, hidden behind the the curtains of the tent, has been fully revealed in Jesus. But only to those who repent and believe. Only to those who repent and believe. But to all who do repent and place their faith in Jesus... Jesus makes two wonderful promises, promises that reveal his heart for you. These are promises that reveal Jesus' heart for you, his, his love for you. First, to those who believe in him and follow him, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. We think about this all the time, but it is a magnificent promise. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Brothers and sisters, this is why the New Testament calls your body a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christian, you should marvel at the fact that you have a permanent and constant presence of the Lord with you. Something that that far surpasses anything that the Israelites ever had in the tabernacle or the temple. His glory dwells in you. His presence dwells in you. The New Testament also calls the church, the corporate gathering of God's people, the temple, because God dwells among his people. As that means you should delight to, to gather with the church because God's presence dwells with his people. And have you considered how amazing that fact is? That God is dwelling with us as we gather? It's not because our building is holy. We don't have to take our shoes to come off in here. Because as his people, we have been made holy because God's glory dwells in us. He dwells among us and with us. That is an amazing truth. 
No, the second promise that Jesus makes to you is that he has prepared a place for you. He has promised to come again and take you to be with him forever. Brothers and sisters, when the love of others feels insecure, when maybe you feel lost and neglected, or maybe mistreated and ignored, the message of the tabernacle is that God's love for you is secure. Like a good friend, like the best of friends, Jesus has come and tabernacled with you to meet you in your grief and pain and suffering and longing and doubt and despair. But friends, more than that, Jesus will never leave you. Like a husband with his bride, he will bring you to live with him. And on that day, your joy will be complete. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you with a steadfast love. He desires to be with you. He will come and take you to be with him. If if you are in Christ, you are never alone. Jesus is who you need. Brothers and sisters, that is the message of the tabernacle for you. The tabernacle reveals God's heart of love for his people. But brothers and sisters, the tabernacle also reveals the second sub-point is it reveals God's rule and authority. It is true that God saved Israel for relationship with him. But in order to enjoy the blessings of his presence, Israel had to submit to God's rule and authority. The tabernacle made this clear. We see this by the very fact that God commanded a copy of the Ten Commandments, his law to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. His law was directly associated with his presence. In addition, look at Exodus chapter 26, verse 30. The Lord commanded, you are to set up the tabernacle according to the plan for it, according to the plan for it that you have been shown on the mountain. Now, all told, some version of that same command is repeated six times in these chapters. Like, make the tabernacle exactly like I just told you to make the tabernacle. It was clear that the tabernacle must be built according to the Lord's instructions. And he must be worshipped according to his instructions. In fact, there would be grave consequences if he was not. Exodus chapter 28, verses 35 and then verse 43 Aaron and the other high priest who would follow Aaron, well, God said that they would die if they did not minister before the Lord in the garments that he commanded them to wear. Exodus chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. This is what God says. Whenever the priest entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar to minister by burning a food offering to the Lord, they must wash with water so that they will not die. They must wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. These are just a a sampling of the strict regulations God gave and the severe consequences for disobedience. Friends, the point was clear. God cares very much how he is worshipped. We can approach the Lord only at his initiative and only according to his instructions. Friends, I think this serves as a helpful correction to the message that is so prevalent in our world today that says whatever feels right must be right. Whatever feels right must be right. Often of the message of the world is, hey, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Whatever you feel is best, just do that. Whatever you do, as long as it is sincere and as long as you really believe in it, 
Well, it must be good. Uh, you can worship the Lord in any way you choose, just as long as it makes you feel good, as long as you feel that it is right. Well, friends, the Lord certainly cares more about our hearts than any outward forms or rituals. But our hearts are to be shaped by the Lord's instructions. Christianity is not a free-for-all to do whatever you think is best or to just follow your heart. It is an invitation to submit yourself to the Lord's instructions. Not because God is oppressive, because walking in the ways of the Lord is the surest path to experience the blessings of the Lord. Church, we are, we are not free to do whatever we want in corporate worship. Whatever we feel is best. We are to pattern our worship on what we see revealed in the word of the Lord. There were conditions to meet if the Lord was to dwell in Israel's midst. All of these instructions taught Israel that obedience was at least one way, if not the main way, that their worship was to be offered. Obedience, their worship was to be offered in their obedience to the Lord. Christian, one of the main ways that you offer worship to God is by walking in His ways. It's by living according to His commands. Those who choose to live in any way they want with little regard for the Lord Monday through Saturday should not fool themselves into thinking that when they occasionally show up to the church on Sunday and sing, that what they're doing is actually worship. To fellowship with the Lord and worship Him, we must submit to His instructions. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Friends, the message of the tabernacle, it reveals God's heart of love for His people, reveals God's rule and authority. But third, the tabernacle reveals God's holiness. Perhaps above all else, the tabernacle communicated the holiness of the Lord. Now, if you were in charge of decorating the palace for the sheikh here in Fajera, now you would instinctively know that only the highest quality furniture, only the highest quality curtains would be appropriate for the rooms that the sheikh lived in, for his bedroom, for the, the family rooms. Now, let's go a step further. Now, let's say the sheikh suddenly said he was going to come with and live with you at your place. Now, I imagine if you got that message that you would reserve the nicest room in your flat for the shape to stay in. You would go and you'd collect all the best of your furniture from around your place and you would put it into that room. Well, friends, so it was with the tabernacle. The closer one got to the place that the Lord dwelled, the most holy place, the nicer and the more precious the materials of the tabernacle became. For instance, in the, in the courtyard of the tabernacle, the furniture, the altar, and basin, well, they were covered with bronze, as were the wooden posts from which the curtains were hung that made up the walls of the courtyard, also covered in bronze. There was no gold to be found in the courtyard of the tabernacle. But inside the tabernacle, all the furniture was overlaid with pure gold, as were the wooden supports. There was no bronze to be found in the most holy place. The closer that you move to the most holy place, the more precious the materials of the tabernacle became. The fabric and the workmanship involved in the fabric also grew nicer the closer one moved to the most holy place. 
The curtains enclosing the courtyard are simply made of finely spun linen. They're nice. But the curtains that made up the walls of the tent itself also contain blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. They were made of a finer and more ornate material. In addition, the curtains of the tabernacle had cherubim stitched into them, while those of the courtyard did not. The veil separating the most holy place, well, it had a cherubim stitched in, while the entrance to the tent itself and the courtyard did not. This required a more technical craftsmanship, more skill to produce and, and make these entrances. The closer one got to the most holy place, the nicer the material became, the finer the, the quality of the workmanship. Again, if you were in charge of the staff in the sheikh's palace, I would imagine that you would make sure those who served the sheikh personally adhered to a strict dress code. They would be dressed nice. Again, so it was with the Lord's house. The garments that were to be worn by Aaron, the high priest who would go into the most holy place, and the high priest that would one day follow Aaron, where they were made of finer materials and were of a higher quality of workmanship than the garments that just the ordinary priest would wear when they ministered in the holy place, the main part of the tent. Not only that, the articles and materials in the holy place had to be anointed as holy, to be sprinkled with blood and holy anointing holy, because they were used in the service of the Lord, near his presence. Church, I think we naturally understand the message that all this communicated. It communicated the Lord's greatness. It communicated the Lord's holiness. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and Sheikh of sheikhs. There is none like him. And so church, this naturally leads to the question, do you give the best of yourself to the Lord? The best of your time? and energy, and resources. What does your own life reveal about what you think of God's holiness and His greatness? People look and say, yes, that person believes that He is King of kings and Lord of lords and shake of shakes. The church, God's holiness was also communicated by the separation that was made between Him and the people in the tabernacle. The Israelites, the people, could only come into the courtyard. The priests could only come into the holy place. And it was only the high priest who could go into the most holy place. And only then, only one time a year. The Israelites could only approach the Lord if they first had their sins atoned for through a substitute sacrifice offered on the altar. Friends, God's holiness is dangerous. In addition, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16... The Lord commanded this to Moses. Verse 11, When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Verse 16, It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. The Israelites had to make an atonement offering for their life to maintain the tabernacle. Maintain the place where God's glory and his presence would dwell among them. This was a reminder of what their sins deserved. They were to do this as a ransom for their lives. It was a reminder that they only dwelled with the Lord at his grace. And it was a reminder that they should joyfully give up their money to gain a far better reward. The presence of the Lord. 
I wonder if we give with the same heart and same desire. God's holiness also demanded that the priests be consecrated to the Lord before ministering in the tabernacle. In fact, the entirety of, of chapter 29 describes the elaborate consecration ceremony that was required for the priests before they could ever minister in the tabernacle. The priests had to be washed or cleaned, clothed in the the priestly garments that God commanded them to to wear. They had to be anointed. Most importantly, their sins had to be atoned for. Over and over and over again, chapter 29, this consecration ceremony emphasizes the atonement that must be made. Just look at Exodus chapter 29, verses 35 and 36. This is what you are to do for Aaron and his sons based on all I have commanded you. Take seven days to ordain them. Sacrifice a bull as a sin offering each day for atonement. Purify the altar when you make atonement for it and anoint it in order to consecrate it. So for a whole week, the people of Israel are to come together and they're going to be sacrificing a bull to anoint the priest to to atone for the sins of the priests who are going to be ministering on, on their behalf. The priests could only minister before the Lord if their sins had been atoned for. I remember that quote from Ross Blackburn. If the Lord were to dwell in the midst of his people, there must be a mechanism whereby he could simultaneously be present and yet protect the people from his holiness. The Lord were to dwell in the midst of his people, there must be a mechanism whereby he could simultaneously be present and yet protect the people from his holiness. Friends, God's holiness is dangerous to anyone or anything that is unclean or unholy. Friends, Israel was a sinful people, an unclean people, an unholy people, just as we are a sinful people, an unclean people or an unholy people apart from the work of Christ on our behalf. Now, if God were to have simply descended down into the midst of the the Israelites' camp, he would have consumed the people. His holiness would have demanded it. Therefore, the, the tabernacle with its boundaries kept a separation between the people of God that protected them as an unclean people from God's glorious holiness. His presence was there, but it was guarded. It was limited. Ritual was required in order for the people to be able to come near. Friends, the the tabernacle was a reminder of the seriousness of sin. Brothers and sisters, you should remember this when you consider the fact that your body is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. Do not take His holiness lightly. Do not take sin lightly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Christian, you are to flee sin and pursue holiness. And the Bible says that your body is a temple of Holy, the Holy Spirit. And it encourages you to pursue holiness. The two most direct applications that the, two nest, the New Testament writers make are that you should flee idolatry, worshiping something other than the Lord, desiring something more than the Lord, and that you should flee sexual immorality, because sexual immorality is a sin against your body. 
Your body is the dwelling place of the Spirit of the Holy God. Flee adultery. Flee pornography. Flee sexual immorality and flee every vile thing. Brothers and sisters, do not take God's holiness lightly. Do not take sin lightly. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Strive for holiness. Fight for it. This is the call of the Christian life. To pursue holiness with all that you have. God is holy and therefore you are to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But again, church, all of this separation, all of these rituals, the entirety of the tabernacle is pointing beyond itself to Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're just not sure, know that turning away from your sin, turning away from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to have relationship with God. The ultimate message of the tabernacle is that we need Jesus. We need Jesus' righteousness, and we need Jesus' holiness to enter the presence of God because we do not have a righteousness and a holiness of our own that is sufficient to enter into the presence of God. Jesus is a far superior high priest to Aaron or any of the high priests who would come later. Look at Exodus chapter 28, verses 9 through 14 for a moment. On the garments and robes that the high priest wore as he went into the holy place were two onk stones engraved with the name of Israel's sons, the tribes of Israel. These were memorial stones for the Israelites. Aaron will carry their names on his two shoulders before the Lord as a reminder. Our friends, it was the high priest who had the job of ministering before the Lord on behalf of the people. He, in some sense, took the people into the presence of the Lord on his shoulders. But Jesus, our great high priest, has not just entered the earthly dwelling place of God. No, Jesus ministers in the heavenly throne room, into the very presence of God. You have entered and can enter into the presence of God, in some sense, carried on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Because his blood is atoned for your sin now, you have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 through 20, 19 through 20. The curtain separating you from the presence of God has been torn in two by the sacrifice of Jesus. It is the cleansing power of Jesus' blood that gives Christians access to God. Brothers and sisters, the tabernacle and the rest of the Bible make it clear that atonement is needed in order for a sinful people to have a relationship with the Holy God. Cleanliness and purity is required to enter into the presence of the Holy God. So the instructions for the tabernacle reveal the need for sacrifices to be offered, the need for the priests to wash themselves, the need for the high priest to be literally covered in the blood of a sacrifice before he could enter the most holy place. Church, what did Jesus do on the cross? He removed the barriers separating us from God. Jesus did what we could not do. He truly cleansed us from our sin. He took away our sinful nature and he gave us a new nature. He took away our heart of sin, our heart of stone, and gave us a heart of flesh. As Tom Schreiner puts it, believers on account of Jesus' sacrifice are now in the realm of the holy. 
They are not unclean or defiled before God, but holy before him because of the work of Jesus. Christians, this purity gives you access today, even right now into the presence of your majestic and beautiful and holy God. And Jesus' sacrifice has secured your final reward. An eternal future, live in the full and free presence of God. We praise be to God. Church, I, I know this sermon may have felt a bit light on practical application. But often what we need most of all is not practical application to our daily lives, but to simply look up and behold the glory and beauty and holiness and heart and rule of God. Brothers and sisters, in the tabernacle we see God's heart. We see something of his rule and authority. We certainly see his holiness. But we also see Jesus in all of his glory. That is what the tabernacle points to. So my prayer for this sermon is that you will walk away marveling that this God desires to dwell with you. That you would walk away marveling that Jesus came and and tabernacled with you. That he tabernacled among us in order to cleanse your sin and bring you into the very presence of God. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that you walk away praising your God who is infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, infinitely loving, infinitely beautiful. Brothers and sisters, that is the message of the tabernacle for you. Let's pray.